Welcome to Agents of Tech with me, Stephen Horn. And me, Atria Godfrey. So we're so excited about today's podcast because for the very first time we're recording this together in person in the same room rather than waving at each other across the Atlantic. Yes, that's right. We are both in London, UK right now in the same room. I'm so excited to be here and we hope to bring you some of the latest thinking in artificial intelligence, big data and technology, and we'll see how it relates to us all and how we live our lives. So let's kick off. We start this week at ID Week in Boston, Massachusetts, where in infectious disease professionals from across the world congregate to learn from each other's expertise to improve public health and patient care. And Stephen, you know, of course, AI has a role to play in the fight against infectious diseases. Our colleague, Katie Brace, spoke to the chair of Harvard Medical School's Department of Biomedical Informatics, Isaac Kohani. Dr. Kohani's mission is to develop the methods, tools, and infrastructure required for a new generation of scientists and care providers to move biomedicine forward by taking advantage of the insights offered by big data. Dr. Isaac Kahani, thank you so much for joining us, taking the trip across the Charles, so to speak, from Harvard. Let's talk about AI. We are really in a remarkable time when it comes to AI and medicine. I would say that we are, and what makes it more very remarkable is it's not just doctors who've been exposed to these new tools, but it's our patients as well. ChatGPT was released to the general public, and so what we see is, yes, it can be useful for doctors, but right off the bat, we're seeing stories of patients who were not diagnosed, using themselves, typing their own histories, and getting diagnosis. So it's very, very exciting. It doesn't fit nicely into our current model of healthcare, and things will change as a result. How do you think it will change in infectious diseases? Well, I think for the first time, we're gonna be able to have a lot more data coming to the doctors. Previously, it was just the history that the doctors could take. Now, with these chat models, you can actually have the patient tell a lot more about the history, who else in the family got affected. So I think we'll have much more complete data about what happened when, and that gets always lost in the telephone game that you play when you go from doctor to doctor to doctor with the original family history. Here we can get it directly from the patient, and then the doctor gets additional support along the way. So that's gonna be quite transformative. It sounds almost that then you could have a cure or a potential solution faster because you have that data that you didn't have before. That's right, that's in two parts. First of all, what we saw, we've seen is realizing that you have a new infectious disease out there is the first step to Mm -hmm. cure. So we saw that with HIV AIDS. When we saw that there was a group of men, young men who were having these sarcomas and these lung fungal infections, that's what cues them that there was this new virus and that ultimately led to the treatments. We're gonna find, and we found the same thing with, with COVID, knowing that we had a new viral strain and looking at the symptomatology that allows you to move a lot faster in discovery. And so what we're gonna see very much in the near future is the systematization of that data gathering. Right now, it's, it requires someone to be alert enough to see this pattern, this happened there, this happened there. And if we have these AI programs that are able just to look at all the data together and find those patterns and find them early, that's gonna accelerate the discovery process. So has AI given you any new insight into certain diseases? The short answer is yes, but really the way I've been using it every day is for the boring stuff. When, when someone asks me for a, a letter f- for school, let's say, mm-hmm. I can t- just take the note 
and say, could you reframe this as, as a school note and does it? And I don't have to, I just can look at it, make sure it's right. But for very difficult problematic diseases, I found it actually is helpful. I recently ran by it a case, undiagnosed patient case where we had sequenced their genome. This was a patient who was doing very poorly and had some problem with the myelination of their brain. And it was not typical for any of the mutations that we found. And GPT-4 was able to say, well, I think it's this mutation because of these symptoms sometimes happen in those cases. And then when we did the, the follow-on research, it's what happened. So I think that it's, it's a compliment to doctors. Doctors are very good at recognizing some of the more common things. Yeah. And these large language models are gonna be really good at taking the cases and finding less common things and also looking at large data sets and analyzing them in real time. And a lot of times when we talk about new technology like artificial intelligence, people get their backs up like, oh, goodness, what does this mean? How can we ensure that it is safe and it is efficient moving forward? Well, I think we have to be honest, which is it has its risks, but I always like to say, compared to what? What do people use today? They use Dr. Google. Mm -hmm. And what does Dr. Google lead you? The first two, three, four, five shots are advertisements. Right. And they lead patients or doctors for that matter to questionable data. So there's no question that these large language models today make errors. They sometimes quote hallucinate and make up things. But here's the thing, they're doing it less and less. And when you realize that it was two years ago that no large language model could do as well as the bottom quarter of doctors in passing mm -hmm. medical exams. And today, two years later, do better than 90% of doctors. Yes. That's fast progress. And if you just extrapolate that next year, it'll be that much better. So yes, it has its issues. Yes, it has risks. But if you're either a doctor stumped or a patient who hasn't had enough time to talk to a doctor or wants a second opinion, so long as you don't do anything just on the basis of those recommendations, you're better off. And so as we move forward, how do we ensure that AI in relation to all people and all infectious diseases is comparable, that so we're being equal? So there's two issues. One is at the level of the United States mm -hmm. and the other level is globally. Globally, as you know, there's many infections which are not happening in the United States. And if we right. just focused on uh, the ones in the United States, would there be not serve as a lot of, like malaria is a huge killer. Mm -hmm. Tuberculosis is a huge killer. So we should make sure that we actually get data that's worldwide to serve those purposes. Within the United States, the diseases, even the infectious diseases that we get in different socioeconomic strata, in different ethnic groups, will actually be different based on who their exposures are, based on their genetics, based on the foods that they eat. And so the, the only true guarantee to have that kind of fair representation and to make sure it works for everybody is to make sure that we have the data from all these different populations. But that requires that people like you put out the word that there is a need to contribute uh, and it should not come from researchers saying, thou shalt give your data. We really need the public to decide, I want to improve the quality of AI, make it more equitable. You have your work cut out for you. We certainly do. <laughs> all right, Dr. Kohani, thank you so much for joining us from Harvard Medical School. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
Lots of opportunities there to harness AI and big data to improve health. But there are also concerns about the potential for bias in the underlying algorithm. Some studies have found race-based discrepancies in the algorithms and limitations due to the lack of healthcare data for women and minority populations. And as Dr. Kohani says, these problems can only be solved if we all contribute. And, you know, Stephen, this was also a theme that I saw recently at the American Society of Human Genetics 2023 annual meeting in Washington, D.C. I spoke to Dr. Athena Starlin-Davenport from the University of Tennessee and Dr. Charles Rotimi from the National Human Genome Research Institute about why it's so important that these large population data sets represent people of different genders and ethnicities in an equitable way and how we can all benefit if they do. Here now in studio is Dr. Athena Starlard-Davenport and Dr. Charles Rotimi, both here today to discuss diversity in genetics and genomics research. Good morning to you both. Thanks for your time. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. All right, let's talk about the fact that, you know, in the field of genetics and genomics, diversity and representation in research is increasingly becoming more and more important. How do you make sure that there is a wide diversity in your research? For my research, I study breast cancer genetics as well as sickle cell disease, and both of those diseases disproportionately affect black individuals okay. or individuals of African ancestry. So for breast cancer, I have developed a study with participants, community advocates, and clinicians called the STAR study, called Sisters Taking a Stand for Breast Cancer Research. And in that study, it's an epidemiological study to understand the causes of breast cancer due to environment as well as genetic factors. So I think for me, for that study, it's important to include uh, minorities, particularly women of African ancestry, because they've been underrepresented in research, genetic research for a long period of time, similarly to sickle cell disease. Dr. Rotimi, how important do you feel it is to make sure that these underrepresented communities are now a part of this research? I think it's critically important, not just from a social justice point of view, but also as a scientific imperative. We cannot fully understand the meaning of some of these variations that we see that are tracking different diseases or traits of humans without looking at different parts of the world. And especially in African ancestry populations, again, all of us will recognize that Africa is the cradle of humanity. And there are things that we see in the genome of African people around the world whether it's in Africa or in the diaspora, that you really cannot study mm -hmm. unless you look at those populations. And so it's not just to help African ancestry populations, but it's really to help the world. Right. Africa. What are some of the challenges or maybe some of the obstacles that you face when it comes to inclusivity and making sure that you are reaching out to those underrepresented communities, making sure they're a part of the research? One of the major challenges has been that a lot of participants in my studies have recognized that a lot of people have not offered uh, for them to participate in a lot of research studies. Um, a lot of the times women say that nobody has asked them to mm -hmm. participate in the studies. And it's not that they don't want to participate. They just wow. haven't been up to, to participate in studies. And a lot of times research has shown that there's a lot of mistrust in the community due to various racial discriminatory factors. And so I think educating the community about the importance of the research and why it will help them as well as future generations is 
critical. How big of an issue is the mistrust? Is it almost as big as people not even being, you know, reached out to and included in the research in the first place? I, I believe it is a very big reason, wow. not only at the individual level, but when in clinic, working with clinicians, physicians, a lot of times there's a lot of mistrust in the communication between mm -hmm. clinicians. And just even when you consider access to certain care, there's a lot of mistrust in whether or not they're going to get the appropriate care that they need. So there's so many different variables that are. You've spoken about your role as a researcher already, but also in your position as an associate professor, what kind of efforts are you making to try and remedy this problem? So, uh, like I mentioned, a lot of these diseases or disorders are impacted by populations of African ancestry. A lot of uh, individuals in these populations are most at risk for developing certain diseases like heart disease, stroke, dying from, from these diseases. So I think it's critical that the people that are infected or are impacted by this, these diseases, you have people that can educate the community. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I'm doing, just to get to the point, yeah. one of the things that I'm, I do is actually uh, work with the community to educate the community about the importance of this, of these diseases and these disorders. But also I like to reach out to students, students by collab developing collaborations, effective collaborations with community partners, historically black colleges and universities mm -hmm. to give students that are minority, underrepresented, even women, opportunities to participate in getting training in my laboratory to learn the new techniques. So that way they can, if they're interested, go on to develop their uh, research careers and to help those that are unfortunate and underrepresented populations. Dr. Rotimi, are there any new breakthroughs or anything exciting in your mind that you think might help really address the health disparities that we're currently experiencing? I think one of the breakthrough is that as geneticists and scientists, we are definitely recognizing that we have not done a good job of expanding the scope of the work that we do to bring different ancestral populations around the world. And some of that realization is as a result of the fact that we know there are aspects of the work that we are doing that we are not having good explanation for and that we needed to, again, to embrace other parts of the world. And if we are going to deploy genomic medicine uh, in a way that benefits everybody everywhere, then we have to include the variations that, that exist in those parts of the world or in those communities, you know, ancestral backgrounds. And so I look at genetics, genomic medicine, it's almost like going to the tailor. If you want your clothes to fit, you better show up for your measurements. You cannot rely on my size right. or my measurements for your clothes. And that's how precise genetics can be. So we need to make sure that we understand how those variations are distributed mm -hmm. around the world. And it's not really in the con we can't conflate that understanding with the issue of race because that's not the point. Mm -hmm. We know that race is a social construct, mm -hmm. but at the same time, uh, we know that we need to represent the distribution of the variation that don't necessarily track how we define ourselves social. Uh, so to me, that's really the, the realization. And then there's a consciousness also going on that it is really terrible that if the outcome of all of our genetic efforts exacerbate already unacceptable hair disparity, then we really have failed. Right. You know? yeah. 
I love the example of going to the tailor. That, that yeah. breaks it down for us laymen and makes it something we can understand. Um, but that also brings me to my final question for both of you. Given now that we are, we are finally addressing this problem, which I think is step number one, you know, acknowledging that this is an, an issue, how do we move forward? What is your hope for the future of genetics and genomics, given that we now know we need to do a better job with diversity and inclusion? That's, <laughs> like, that's the million-dollar question. <laughs> I don't think it's, uh, it's, it's changing infrastructure. I think Dr. Rotimi, he hit it on the nail. I mean, every one size does not fit, fit yeah. all. You have to change. There's you have to change infrastructure. That can be down to programs. Just recognizing the health equity, mm -hmm. talking about it, speaking about it. But it's a long effort um, that will take. We have a ways to go. We have a ways to go. Do you agree, Dr. Rotimi? I, I absolutely agree, and I think there are very fundamental things that we can do as a society and especially funding agencies. I say that we need to be a little more understanding of the reason why certain parts of the of our society, of our world, haven't been fully funded mm -hmm. and therefore are not participating fully uh, in genomic uh, research. One of the ways that we can address this is to have targeted funding uh, to bring on board those communities and parts of the world that has not participated fully. And, and it, we cannot just continue to use the same model of like an arrow one grant and things like that. So if you look at an arrow one grant, for example, it's really based on people who are already successful and can articulate yes. a new specific aim. But if you are looking at areas that are already disenfranchised, then you need to find a way to bring them to the, to the table and sort of balance that table a little bit so everybody can be equal players. And to be able to do that, you need targeted funding and a realization that uh, these are also taxpayers, so we need to make sure that they are adequately represented Absolutely. in the work that we do. So targeted funding, I think, for me, is a very, very important. And if we are engaging institutions right. like you know, HBCUs and, and things like that, we need to make sure that there were no accidents to just donate samples, but we are putting the infrastructures, you know, in those institutions so that they can do their work mm -hmm. uh, and be a player just like Harvard or, or any other institutions around the world. Right. Well, the fact that you're both here today speaking about it, hopefully that's a huge first step forward, you know, making sure people are aware. And certainly thanks to you. And thank you for all of your research. Appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you very much. And, uh, you know, I think uh, ASSG is doing a fantastic job bringing attention to this. And uh, hopefully we can continue to chip. Yeah. Chip away. <laughs> <Chip> away. <laughs> yeah. Great point. Yeah. Thank you. So we know analyzing genomic data across populations is central to understanding the role of genetic factors in health and disease. Successful data sharing relies on public support, which is reliant on whether people around the world are willing to donate their data to share with others for research. So where do people stand on sharing their data? Well, a very large public survey on attitudes toward genomic data sharing with data from over 36,000 individuals across 22 countries showed willingness to donate one's DNA and health data for research is re actually relatively low. And trust in the process of data being shared with multiple users is also low. Participants were most willing to donate DNA or health information for research when the recipient was specified as a medical doctor, and they were least willing to donate when the recipient was a for-profit researcher. So, as you can see, trust in big data and AI remains problematic. Big data and AI needs access to DNA and health data to be accurate and equitable, but the public needs to trust the process. And clearly, doctors and other health professionals can play a role. I am sure we will return to this topic.
topic. <laughs> Audra, I'm sure we will. Next time, we'll be looking at transformative technologies in genetic and genomic medicine and attitudes towards scientific innovation and other factors shaping technological uptake. So until then, it's goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.